X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, July 6th. Please do subscribe to The Local. Please do rate and review and share it with a friend. You can find us on all the platforms through Linktree backslash The Local Portland. Yesterday, back in the day, July 5th, 1843, Oregon voters, that meant Oregon's white male population, voted to prohibit slavery by incorporating into Oregon's 1843 organic laws the provision of the 1787 Northwest Ordinance. Today, back in the day, July 6th, 1983, the Supreme Court ruled retirement plans can't pay women less. And today, not that far back in the day, out in Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Philando Castile in St. Paul, Minnesota, both killed by police officers, both killings filmed. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. We'll have another part of the in-depth look at the Clark County Council proceedings on racial justice with Barb Seaman and part two of our interview with Representative Janelle Bynum. DJ Ambush and I discuss the chances for systemic change in this moment. Representative Bynum is leading the House charge to reform police accountability in Oregon. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Well, the 4th of July happened. Happy birthday, America. The mayor of Sandy, Oregon, took to social media to blast Governor Kate Brown and the Oregon Health Authority, saying they had forced the town to cancel the 4th of July fireworks display. No word of the dogs of Sandy, Oregon, weighed in on that decision. I say that because the dogs, they don't like the fireworks. And Oregon City Mayor Dan Holliday complained on Facebook last month that protests against police violence were allowed to go on even his his towns. He's the second mayor to complain. Oregon City Mayor Dan Holliday had complained on Facebook that protests against police violence were allowed to go on even as his town's 4th of July party was not. And police in Lincoln City, Oregon, said this weekend they arrested seven men on various charges after a group of white people after they allegedly harassed a black family on Independence Day by using racial slurs and Nazi salutes. The charter review process in Portland has begun. Last week, Mayor Ted Wheeler said the 20-member Citizen Charter Review Commission will be appointed by the end of this year and could refer reform measures to Portland voters by the November 2022 general election. The council approved $200,000 to the commission. It was going to appropriate $400,000. They had less money because of the pandemic. The mayor said he hopes and expects the commission will propose changing Portland's form of government, in which city council members are elected citywide and they oversee bureaus. They have real power. Charter reform has failed multiple times in the past, particularly when it was largely pushed by developers, arguing it would make things more efficient. More recently, advocates have made the case that dividing up the city into districts will diversify the council and make campaigns more manageable and accessible. Amanda Fritz and Joanne Hardesty both said they didn't think they should direct what the Charter Review Commission focused upon. Fritz argued the city's new Open and Accountable Elections public campaign financing program already is addressing some of the criticisms attributed to Portland's former government. Indeed, there is a strong likelihood that come next year, a majority of Portland City Council members will be people of color. And borrowing this rundown from Jim Redden of the Portland Tribune, Carmen Rubio used public funding and became the first Latina woman elected to the council. Loretta Smith, a black woman, is facing off against Dan Ryan, a gay white man, in the August 11th special election. And another publicly funded candidate, African-American Mingus Maps, forced incumbent Commissioner Chloe Daly into a runoff in the November 3rd general election. 
As for the review commission process, each city councilor will name four members to the Charter Review Commission. The council is scheduled to hold another work session on August 25th. Appointments will be made by December 15th. You want ways to engage? You can testify before city council. You could weigh in to your city commissioner. You could also reach out to a city commissioner to apply to be on the Charter Commission. And your daily dose of COVID-19 news here. There has been an outbreak of COVID-19 at the Snake River Correctional Institute outside Ontario. More than 3,100 inmates are now under quarantine. That puts 5,400 inmates total on lockdown in Oregon. That means roughly one-third of the state's prison population are now unable to leave their cells. The outbreak at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem remains. And as of Saturday, at least 180 inmates and 59 staff people have contracted the coronavirus. One inmate died in May. And with 301 new and presumptive cases yesterday, Oregon's total cases now have gone over 10,000 to 10,230. That's four straight days with more than 300 new COVID-19 diagnoses. And the state's death toll is now 215. Most of the new cases are in the Portland metro area, plus Umatilla County with 41 new cases. Governor Kate Brown identified eight counties where COVID-19 is spreading the fastest and have the highest rates of sporadic transmission, or in other words, they have no clear tracing to other outbreaks. These counties will be placed on a watch list. They include Jefferson, Lake, Lincoln, Malheur, Morrow, Umatilla, Union, and Wasco. Health officials will closely monitor those counties. And the state of Washington has now reported 35,247 confirmed cases and 1,354 known deaths. The Lucky Lab, Lucky Labrador Brewing, announced it will be temporarily reclose its four brew pubs, fearing the 4th of July weekend crowds might cause a further spike in infections. The head of the place said the worst thing that could happen right now is to have an outbreak at your business. It could potentially scar you for a long time. You'd potentially have a scarlet letter on your business. And meanwhile, Portland restaurant group Toro Bravo is going out of business, maybe. On July 1st, the Oregonian reported that the group, which includes Toro Bravo, Tasty and Alder, Tasty and Daughters, and Plaza de Toro is closing. However, the next day, Willamette Week had a different story. They said layoffs were coming and some takeout and delivery services would be suspended, but the closures might not be permanent. Renee Gorham, who took over the company after her husband's departure, said that she hadn't decided if the closures would be for good. And as of now, Toro Bravo, the company, has not dissolved. Other businesses under the group's umbrella have separated, including Shalom Y'all, Bless Your Heart Burgers, Mediterranean Exploration Company, and Mama Sesame, as well as the not-yet-opened Yala. Chief and founder John Gorham had divested himself from the group amid outcry over his verbal attack on a trans woman of color on Facebook. The issue began as a discussion in May about who was tagging the company's trucks in southeast Portland. It descended into a verbal battle with demands for cash donations. Renee Gorham says she does not condone her husband's actions and that the incident, quote, does not represent my values or the values of my company. Oregon has approved adding renewable diesel to the Columbia River Railway transloading facility. The DEQ, Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, has approved a permit for an ethanol terminal to begin transloading renewable diesel, despite receiving thousands of comments arguing against the permit. Transloading, by the way, is the process of transferring a shipment from one mode of transportation to another. You know, like from a train to a boat. So now the Global Partners Klatskanai Facility Standard Air Containment Discharge Permit has been approved after 2,200 comments on the matter. DEQ's approval was the last regulatory hurdle for Global Partners to begin transloading renewable diesel, ethanol, and crude oil. 
The facility is located on the Columbia River, so that means presumably that facility will take in diesel, ethanol, and crude oil coming from trains and put it on boats in the Columbia. They are now permitted to transload up to $1.8 billion of combined volatile organic liquid product per year. That's the equivalent of two trains per day loaded with fuel. Global Partners will prepare to start receiving renewable diesel in the fall. And Governor Kate Brown met with the Oregon State troopers who refused to wear their face masks in a Corvallis coffee shop. Two days after the troopers were caught on video, openly defying Governor Brown's statewide mask mandate, and one of them saying, the governor, Brown met with those troopers in Mahonia Hall in Salem. Mahonia Hall is the Ellis Lawrence-designed governor's mansion. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. In Clark County, the five-member county council has been grappling with how to move forward to address systemic racism. It's been a charged issue for the last couple of weeks with groups like the YWCA, NAACP, and the League of United Latin American Citizens weighing in. Last week, the teachers' union representing 4,900 Clark County educators also sent a letter to the council. Here's Barb Seaman with more. For KXRW Vancouver, I'm Barb Seaman. When Clark County Council Chairwoman Eileen Quiring made this statement on June 16th, because I don't, I do not agree that we have systemic racism in our county. She caught the public's Period. attention and provoked responses for many community members and organizations. One of those is the WEA Riverside, the union representing 4,900 Clark County teachers and support staff which reached out to the council last week to make an offer. What we are doing is extending an invitation to her as a kind of intervention to invite her to come and meet with a group of our educators uh, who, are, who are trained in this work, um, who have life experiences uh, around systemic racism. And, and we want to educate her on um, how systemic racism is real and how it's real within our schools. Adam Aguilera is a high school English teacher for Evergreen Public Schools in Vancouver. He's a member of the WEA Riverside Equity Committee. Systemic racism is something that has existed in public education since its its founding. Um, If you look back in history to how American Indians, for example, were, were forced into government schools to Um, lose their language and culture. Uh, It is a very similar experience to how our students of color have been, uh, you know, forcibly assimilated into a uh, a white expression of American culture that has been harmful and alienating to them uh, in receiving their own education. And that has resulted in something called the school to prison pipeline, where our students of color are disproportionately disciplined. He says that one of the first steps in addressing racism in schools is to recognize implicit bias. All of us have an implicit bias towards different groups in the society that we interact with. And, and it, it's, a, it's a natural human feeling to have an implicit bias, and that's okay. The difference in what we train our educators and staff to understand is having a self-awareness about their implicit bias so that they are reflective and professional in terms of what they say and what they do when they interact with students and and colleagues of color. Uh, And what that does is it it lowers microaggressions, um, which are slights that are done um, either subconsciously or intentionally towards other people. And that can reduce uh, disproportionate discipline because the educator is able to realize, okay, 
am I treating this student to this student differently when um, I'm holding them accountable for something that they're doing wrong in the classroom? That is such an important self-reflective piece that needs to be universal, not only in our schools, but in every institution in Clark County. There's a high cost for failing to address racist attitudes in education. Aguilera says he's seen many ways it can work its way into the school environment. Sometimes uh, I will see symbols that they upload as, you know, avatars on their, when they're using the technology, the, the district devices. Um, there, there are symbols in the artwork that they create, uh, whether you catch it of them drawing it on the desk or if they draw or publish it somewhere else on the campus. Uh, it's, it's quite traumatizing, and it's traumatizing for our students of color to see that. And for our school districts, being, you know, predominantly a perspective of, you know, uh, white administrators, white educators, they don't see or experience racism from their perspective on a daily basis in the way that our students and colleagues of color do. And so because of that denial, it creates tremendous harm. Um, in just the school community and environment. And in, in creating that harm, it opens up uh, doors where white supremacist groups are able to infiltrate and recruit within our own schools. As far as choiring and the county council are concerned? We are, we are living in a time where we are having a reckoning about racism in the United States of America, a nation that was founded um, on um, racial oppression of all different groups of, of, of people of color. And in Clark County, the same thing is happening r right here. And so we have to have an understanding as a community that we can't ignore that racism is happening to so many people because it is. That's Vancouver school teacher and member of the WEA Riverside Equity Committee, Adam Aguilera. For X-Ray FM and KXRW Vancouver, I'm Barb Seaman. Here's DJ Ambush and Jefferson Smith with part two of our interview with Representative Janelle Bynum. In part two, the discussion broadens to opportunities for sustained systemic change. Um, legislature just finished its first special session. Right. Um, I guess it said first to be clear, there will be more. Um, what made the biggest impact? I think the, the looming issue over the first special session was that for me, I expected us to meet much sooner. Um, I was on the joint committee on coronavirus response. I think that was in March or April. I, I can't even remember now. Um, and I thought that we were going to have legislation come out very shortly after we finished that committee. And we ended up in a position, and I'm not quite sure why, where we had more executive orders rather than legislation coming through. So I think that that loomed over, um, you have to get four caucuses to agree to come. The governor can call you, but as we've seen, our, our rules don't um, force anybody to show up. Mm. So that was um, definitely um, something that hung over. And then the, the tension in the air about police accountability was heavy. Who was engaged in the process? Who was being heard? Who did have influence? Mm. So it was a really, um, and this I would say is what I was most proud of. Um, the DAs were at the table, the police unions were at the table, the uh, attorney general's office was at the table. There was uh, the 
um, attorneys for um, civil, civil rights attorneys were at the table. So um, Republicans were at the table, Democrats were at the table, and um, police chiefs and sheriffs. So I have not seen in my career in the Judiciary Committee, I have not seen all of those people um, weighing in on an issue where they weren't fighting. And to me, by design, I wanted to tell everyone and, and ensure everyone that A, they would always have a voice. I didn't necessarily have to agree with it, but they would always be welcome at my table. And two, um, they each had a role in the outcomes that we're seeing in this state as it relates to how the police interact with the public. So that I think was um, really important for people to know. And it's one of those behind the scenes types of things. The, the way I described it on my Facebook post is that I needed to like smoke out all the people who were gonna cause me trouble. Like weed or like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Jefferson, I like my Bible and I like pantyhose. I <laughs> you want to smoke out with everybody. I don't know. I just trying to figure it out. No, I mean like fumigate. I like, get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> so you have. Uh, so I've served on the Judiciary Committee, and I have an idea of who engages in those conversations, yeah. right? And if there is some bill that is proposed, to you know, some tough on crime bill or some opposite of that kind of bill that it is the DAs, it is the sheriffs, it is the chiefs of police, occasionally it is the police union who bring power to bear. There, It is harder to find an entre you know, a, a lobbyist, a group that has somebody who's there session after session, wandering the halls day after day, setting up meetings, who is advocating for structural reform, right? Because the structure has its power. The thing that isn't yet a structure, it doesn't yet have the same kind of power. Who is ab And if you don't have a whole bunch of people coming down to testify, it seemed to me that a lot of the burden was being placed on the People of Color Caucus in the legislature to be those advocating for change, maybe with a few civil rights attorneys to help with a bunch of other legislators who I would talk to, we would talk to, and they'd say, oh, whatever Lou Frederick says, we're with him. Whatever Janelle Bynum says, we're with her. And that was that was sort of the dynamic. Who had your back? Who was who was helping make it easier? So they all did. Yeah. They all did. And what I said was there were no emergent jackasses trying to disrupt the process. So, so here's the thing. The DAs want to have good cops so that their, their cases don't get thrown out. Okay. They have an interest in that. The, the police officers have an interest in coming to work in a safe and, safe and healthy environment where the rules are clear. The chiefs of police want to make sure that they hire the best people, they can train the best people, and if they have a bad one, they can get rid of them when they need to. The uh, civil rights attorneys want to make sure that when, when their clients come to them with the case, that they have enough that the bar isn't so low that people can get out of accountability by saying, I feared for my life. So, so to be honest, everybody had something, and to me as as a lawmaker, the skill, the, the leadership skill is how do you get people to the table and keep them there, have them reveal what their interests are and create an environment that assures them that their interests will be addressed. That's the skill. And that's the, that's the long-term 
framework that needed to be laid if I'm ever going to get anything accomplished over the next 12 months. There was some mixed messaging uh, regarding the use of tear gas. Is, do we have any clarity on that? Do we know why that's still allowable? Um, for that very reason. So sometimes you can ban something and you can be very specific and then the police will just use something similar. <laughs> so you kind of need to understand what you're banning. So is it the substance? Is it the effect? Or is it the use of a whole range of um, materials in that, in that category? One thing that is, is really important to me, the central question was, do we have a problem with the laws that we have now? Or do we have a problem with the abuse of those laws? Or do we not have a law at all? And people couldn't quite answer that question for me. So I'm asking, what am I fixing? I know things are broken. Things are bad. But what am I fixing? When I look at the bills, and, and I will say, if I imagined six weeks ago, somebody said, hey, here, they're going to propose six bills. They're going to get done, I think, five of them plus a task force. They're going to weaken each one of those bills, uh, but they're all going to pay, all, you know, five of those things are going to pass. And they're going to get that done in like a few weeks. I would have been amazed and dazzled and impressed. I found myself as it was happening saying, well, I can tell the lobbying process where the law enforcement folks, the good news is they're working together. The bad news is there isn't as much bottom up. The bad news is there there isn't enough or as much at least uh, entrenched lobby force among reform forces. Right, The status quo has more built in power. I could tell that because just looking at the count, like each each amendment I saw was not an amendment, to, you know, to push for reparations. Right, each, each amendment I saw was to make it more manageable for district attorney, sheriffs, police chiefs, the police union. Were there any any of those changes, any of those amendments that you thought were most uh, were most obvious or things you think that people need to most be watchful for if they want to strengthen something in the future? So the, the conversation on chokeholds um, and just uh, holds in general, I think is something that we need to watch for. What has been a gift um, has actually been the gift of time because I read, I think it was this weekend, that what we really needed to get at was an officer's duty to preserve the health of a person. So you, you could ban any kind of hold all you want. Once they're dead, they're dead. But the obligation for an officer to turn a person over to make sure that they're breathing is to me a much stronger and not to impose any type of hold that would restrict their breathing to me is much stronger legislation than banning a sexy word. You have to give them a duty to protect the life of the person, even as they're arresting them. That's a much higher bar. That's a much higher bar. And it's one that we can associate outcomes. How many people died when you were handcuffing them? Uh, qualified immunity, one of the bigger issues. Is anyone taking that up? So Representative Wilde is working on that. I think that's a much broader conversation. I think it's taking place more in the uh, Congress. 
but he's super uh, interested in that. He just joined the Judiciary Committee, so he's he's working on that. What party and where from is is Representative Wilby? Uh, Wilby is from the Eugene area, and he's a, a House Democrat. And how come more in Congress than in the state? Um, I think right now the emphasis is on uh, the tear gas and crowd control. It was on the arbitration. Um, see, let me let me just remind you, um, Jefferson. This this is not a black people's problem, but black people are at the table trying to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is one of the essence, like the essence of what I think is the important and interesting dynamic that we're talking about, right? Right. So, so like, how much work do you expect me to do to to unravel four hundred years? That's that's like you that's know? even and 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 that's actually the very first question, right? That to right? me is sort of the first question is like how much how much burden do you want versus how much power do you want, right? And where do you want the power and where do you want or not want the burden? And that that actually is to me one of the most interesting pieces of the dynamic. And we saw a similar thing in the city council, right? Where like everybody's been looked at and like white allies up and down the street saying, oh, well, whatever Joanne Hardesty says, I'm with that, right? Don't need to ask me. I'm Joanne Hardesty's friend. I'll because do you don't want to do the work. Right. It, it, this is, and, and I, yeah, I'm not, and I'm not here to back up white people. That's not my objective. <laughs> my objective is trying to figure out. And I think there's a lot of people though trying to figure out the moves, right? Where it's, because it's, it can be a comfortable place to try to say, I will defer to the leaders of color. Right. Yeah. So, and, but, but, but yeah. So say more. So, so deferring to us, thank you. Um, but this, this is y'all's work. Yeah. Um, the, the white men that I look at in the, um, house chamber, you know, cutting deals. It's right up there in the mural. You know, you saw it. Um, that This is all they're doing, right? So we're trying to unravel that. And I, I get that people are used to change happening very quickly, but let me remind you of something. A lot of times when Black people ask for laws, we'll, we'll get them and then they come back to bite us. So crack cocaine, the laws for uh, crack cocaine, you know, the, the sentencing laws were much stronger than powder cocaine, uh, three strikes, um, zero tolerance in terms of like saying the N word, you know, who gets in trouble? The black kids. So, you know, I, I, I get a little skeptical when I hear, um, when I hear my white colleagues who want to be outraged, they want to share their outrage and they want to move things along, but um, they are rarely the ones that bear the brunt of the mistake. So on the national scale, national scope here, there's been a call for Biden to pick a black woman running mate. And unless he does that, we're going to hold the vote. Um, I think there's there's a little dishonesty in the power dynamic there and the ability to hold the vote, especially with who we have in the office. But what ways of, uh, of, of creating accountability are there in this particular situation? Wow, that that's that's so like multi layered there. Um, let me relate it back to Oregon. Um, there was a proposal to have independent investigations come out of the AG's office, transfer them to the AG's office. 
And I rejected that proposal because um, I was not confident that given two options, I was picking the best. That we had an AG's office that is structured to meet those outcomes, regardless of who is in there. So what I think it means is we have to be, um, we have to finally say that, we have to finally understand that our votes count for something. We should make demands on, some, on, on these things, but we shouldn't be stupid. So all of the people who stayed home and did not vote, cast their, their voice, their vote one way or the other, Trump or whoever, we lost the courts. We lost the courts. And in the state of Oregon, when the attorney general seat is up, if we don't understand the, um, the impact of that position, we are continuously getting the least worst option. So I, I don't know exactly how to answer your question except to say that we need to be deliberate with our votes and we need to understand the potential outcome. We cannot afford to lose another 30 years of the courts. We can't. Thank you so much for your time. This was, this was, this was amazing. Very, very informative interview. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. I'll pile on. Thank you so much, Representative Janelle Bynum, for joining us. All right. Take care, guys. Be well. Thanks for your service. Thank you for listening to The Look of Your Hometown in about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.